Hello, and welcome to Relevant History. I'm Dan Toller. Today's episode is part two of a two-parter on the history of the nation of Serbia from their revolution in the early 1800s up through the end of World War I or thereabouts. If you'd like to hear part one of the story, simply look at last episode, which is For the Honor of Belgrade, part one. Now, at the end of that episode, we left off with the formation of a secret society within the Serbian nation. Uh, if you recall, the Serbian king, Alexander Obrenovich, was unpopular, and a group of army officers uh, assassinated him and replaced him with his rival, Peter Karadurdovich. This marked the end of nearly a hundred-year dispute over which dynasty, the Obrenovich dynasty or the Karadurdovich dynasty, uh, should be ruling the nation of Serbia, and the Karadurdovich dynasty came out on top, with Peter Karadurdovich being installed on the Serbian throne. Now, this group of army officers that had overthrown Alexander Obrenovich, I referred to them in the last episode as the Black Hand. Now, that is technically not accurate yet at this point in time. Uh, this was just an army officer conspiracy uh, to remove the hated king. The actual name Black Hand would not come about until nearly a decade later. But even so, after Alexander Obrenovich's overthrow in June of 1903, the group that would become the Black Hand remained influential, at least at lower levels in the military. This was mainly due to the influence of the founder of the Black Hand, right? If you remember him, his name was Dragutin uh, Dimitrovic, also known as Apis, right? Because he was a big, strong man, just like Apis, the bull god. And Apis remained active in the military. He actually would become an instructor at the Serbian Military Academy. And there he would build a network of junior officers that vastly expands the reach of what would become the Black Hand. And Peter Karadurdovich would have to deal with this group of officers through most of his reign. Now, Peter himself was a Renaissance man, and he was a little bit older. Right? He was actually 60 years old when he took the throne. Uh, he had been born in 1844 and was the son of Prince Alexander Karadurdovich. Right? Remember back then the Serbian leaders were not kings, they were princes, and uh, Peter for a time was the heir apparent to the Serbian throne. But when he was 14 years old in 1858, uh, as you'll recall, Alexander Karadurdovich was deposed and exiled. Now, surprisingly, this actually did not have an immediate negative impact on the young Peter. At the time of Alexander's deposition, he was already on his way to attend secondary school in Geneva, Switzerland, which he did. 
and then when he finished there in 1861, he moved to Paris, where he enrolled in the Saint-Cyr, that is France's most prestigious military academy. It was founded by Napoleon, and actually today in 2020, uh, it remains France's most prestigious military academy. And during his time there, Peter did not just study uh, military strategy. He also found time to study philosophy. And he was so impressed by the works of British philosopher John Stuart Mill that he became the first person to write a Serbian-language translation of Mill's most famous work, well, potentially most famous work, um, On Liberty. Uh, and that was during his studies. Uh, Peter would remain in France, and in 1871, he actually joined the French Foreign Legion. Now, because it wouldn't play well for a uh, member of Serbian royalty, even deposed Serbian royalty, to be fighting in the Foreign Legion, uh, he used a pseudonym, uh, but he fought in the Franco-Prussian War. Uh, now, that war itself was a disastrous French defeat. Uh, the Prussians effectively defeated the entire French army and captured uh, the emperor within a month. But the war did go on technically for a little while after that. And uh, Peter actually won the Legion of Honor, which is a major French military medal, uh, at one point, he is captured by the Prussians, uh, but he escapes and returns to his units. And when the Franco-Prussian War is over, he takes that military experience back to his own people. Now, he can't, for political reasons, go into Serbia right now. His father was deposed, a rival dynasty is on the throne. He would be seen as a threat. Uh, so instead, what he does is goes to uh, neighboring Bosnia. Uh, if you look at a map, Bosnia is just to the west of Serbia. It's, uh, they're separated by a river, but other than that, it's next door. And he joins some guerrilla units, which are uh, fighting against the Ottoman Empire, who at this time are the overlords there. And this is low-level fighting. This is not a full-scale insurrection, but this is an area of the world where there has been unrest for some time. Regardless, Peter's presence in Bosnia as a leader of any kind uh, to Serbian people is seen as a threat to the current Serbian prince, uh, Milan Obrenovic. Milan is trying to uh, send agents out to arrest Peter, uh, so Peter flees to Paris. Uh, and while he is there, a Serbian court actually tries him for treason in absentia. There's this non-specific plot to overthrow the Obrenovic dynasty, uh, and he is sentenced to hang, but the sentence really carries no weight outside of Serbia. Uh, so Peter remains free, and in 1883 he would settle in the small country of Montenegro, near Serbia, and he would marry a lady named Ljubka. 
uh, a princess of Montenegro. And before her death, they would have four children together. Uh, in 1890, she would die uh, giving childbirth to their fifth child, Prince Andrew, who also died during the birth. And Peter, at this time, is working with the Prince of Montenegro, Dubka's father. Now, uh, Montenegro at the time is much like Serbia had been as a princedom, right? It is ruled by a prince, not a king. So this guy, Prince Nicholas, is in charge of Montenegro, uh, and they're working on a plan together to invade Serbia and put Peter on the throne, sort of push Milan Obrenovic out. In other words, there may not have been a plot to overthrow Milan Obrenovic earlier, but now there is. Nicholas backs out at the last second in 1894. Reasons are unclear as to why, but it's not unreasonable to think that Peter really needed to have the backing of the Serbian military if he wanted this to work, at least of some portion of the military, right? Montenegro's a small country, very small, even significantly smaller than Serbia. So the Montenegrin army is only going to get you so far if you're trying to launch this invasion and coup. Regardless of whether that was Nicholas's reason or not, he does back out. Um, and Peter is angry at this point, right? Lyubka's dead. There's really no reason for him to stay in Montenegro, so he doesn't. He takes uh, his three surviving children. Another had died in infancy. Uh, he takes his three surviving children, and he moves back to Geneva, right, where he had gone to high school. Uh, at this time, he sends his two sons, George and Alexander, to Russia, the Russian Tsar is still on good terms with the Karadordovich family, and Peter's sons are actually able to attend the military academy there and uh, do fairly well for themselves, but Peter himself is now living in poverty. He doesn't really have any estates. His family wealth is more or less dried up, and uh, he's living in an apartment in Geneva until 1903, when he's 59 years old and the May coup assassins, the people who would become the Black Hand in Serbia, overthrow Alexander Obrenovich, and the National Assembly decides that who else but Peter Karadordovich should be king. So he accepts the title. And uh, his position on the coup is interesting. He is openly glad that the Abrenovich dynasty is no more. After all, uh, this is, as I said, nearly a century-long rivalry, and it makes sense that he would be happy uh, that it's finally done with and his family is no longer under that cloud. At the same time, being a king now himself, he can't condone an assassination, and truth be told, he seems to feel badly about how it was carried out, right? With uh, Alexander and his wife being pulled out of their closet and shot summarily. Uh, Peter at the time would say, quote, it was neither gentlemanly nor worthy of the 20th century, unquote. Well, 
regardless of his personal feelings, Peter would have to deal with this group of army conspirators through most of his reign. And his reign would begin on September 21st, 1904. And that was, just as a side note, uh, not just a big day for Serbia, but a big day for film history, because the recording of Peter's coronation is the world's very first newsreel. Anyway, reactions around the rest of the world are mixed. This is not only a military coup, but also a change of dynasty in Serbia. Uh, as you might expect, right? remember the Russian Tsar Nicholas II, as I said, uh, was friendly with the Karadordoviches. Uh, he welcomes Peter's rise. Uh, the Austrians are neutral. If you'll recall, the Obrenoviches had been fairly friendly to the Austrians, the Karadordoviches not so much, so the Austrians are kind of going to wait and see what Peter's rise means for uh, Austro-Serbian relations. Oddly enough, the country that is most upset is Great Britain. Uh, the British being people who are very dedicated to law and order and doing things the proper way, uh, they want to see the conspirators arrested and tried. Right? They don't have a problem with Peter taking the throne. That's fine. That was an act of the National Assembly. But you know, these conspirators, well, they did murder the old king, and we can't have that. They've got to pay for their crimes. Peter refuses to arrest the conspirators. One of his first acts is king. And I should point out it's questionable whether or not he could even arrest the conspirators. That's going to come up again and again throughout this story, where for a variety of reasons, Serbian leaders do not rein in the Black Hand. You've got to remember... The Black Hand is not the majority of army officers. It's certainly only a small fraction of the senior leadership, but there are enough of them to cause trouble. And Serbia, with its history of coups and instability, uh, is potentially vulnerable to that. So the king and the prime minister of Serbia throughout this period are going to have to be careful about how they navigate that situation. Anyway, Britain is most upset about this situation, and they do, for a time, actually cut off diplomatic ties over Peter's refusal to arrest the Meiku conspirators. Now, Britain notwithstanding the country other than Serbia most affected by this change in dynasty was undoubtedly Austria, right? Remember, we said they had the friendly Obrenovich dynasty. Now they have to wait and see what Peter Karadordovich is going to do. And the reason this is particularly problematic for Austria is that there is a large ethnic Serb minority just across the border from Belgrade in the southern part of the Austria-Hungarian Empire. We, uh, we talked about that uh, last episode, this zone that used to be called the military frontier. Well, now 
Uh, since the Treaty of Berlin in 1878, right, the same treaty where Serbia became fully independent, uh, Austria has now had even more Serbs within its bounds. Well, sort of. Uh, the district of Bosnia-Herzegovina has been in a weird legal limbo. Uh, this district, right, to the west of Serbia, is still technically part of the Ottoman Empire, but not really. You see, Austria-Hungary not only maintains the right to defend the uh, Christian peoples of that country, but they also maintain military garrisons there. Right? Hard to say that that is really Ottoman territory when... Their rivals, the Austria-Hungarians, have military units stationed there. Now, Austria so far has been hesitant to act further, right, to formally annex this region. Part of this has been because it would cause trouble with the Ottomans again, right? And as much as the Ottomans are a fading power... The British policy of maintaining the balance of power in Europe, uh, as well as other factors, right? Not all the great powers want to see the Ottomans fail, and uh, countries, uh, particularly at this time uh, Britain and France, are liable to uh, join the Ottoman side uh, if Austria tries anything. Another problem for Austria is that uh, were they to take any action in Bosnia-Herzegovina, and were Serbia to object, well, now that the Karadordovic dynasty is back in control, Serbia might just have the backing of the Russians as well. This essentially makes it impossible for Austria to take any further action towards seizing Bosnia at that time, but... Then something changes. Right as Peter Karadordovich is taking the Serbian throne in 1904, Russia goes to war with Japan. You've got to remember, right, Russia is the largest country in the world. It is today, and it was even bigger back then. It stretches from what is now modern-day Poland all the way to the Pacific Ocean. And even as it's embroiled in European politics, Russia is trying to uh, maintain some warm-weather ports in the Pacific Ocean, right? It's not enough to have a few ports up in Siberia. Right? Those freeze over in the winter, and if you want to have any kind of naval presence, heck, any kind of consistent year-round commercial activity and grow this vast eastern territory of Russia, well, you want uh, some warm-weather ports. And at this time, the Japanese also have an empire, and they have some territory around Manchuria, right near Siberia, along the edge of what is now Russian territory, 
and uh, the Russians decide to go to war with Japan. At the outset, most European powers and thinkers consider that this war is just going to be a cakewalk. There's a little bit of racism there. The idea of an Asian power defeating a European power was simply unthinkable to many of these people. But it was also true that Japan, I should point out, much like some of these Eastern European countries, uh, Japan was just recently coming out of its own feudal era. Now, they had gone through a period called the Meiji Restoration, where in the course of a generation, Japan uh, in the late 1800s modernized from what was essentially a medieval economy to an economy on par with uh, the countries of Europe. And this was done very intentionally. See... The Japanese were aware of the various European colonial empires, also of American naval strength in the Pacific at this point, and they realized if they didn't want to be one of those countries that got colonized, they were going to have to be just as good as the Europeans at industry and all of these modern tricks that were enabling the Europeans to uh, take over much of the world at this point in history. And much to the surprise of European observers, not only do the Russians lose this war with Japan, they lose badly. The Japanese would first meet the Russian Pacific Fleet in battle, and through superior maneuvering, sink the Russian Pacific Fleet, more or less entirely. Uh, there were some ships that got away, but not enough to form an effective fighting force. Uh, the Russian Tsar, Nicholas II, the last Tsar, by the way, uh, was not to be deterred by this Asian power, and he sailed his Baltic fleet all the way around the globe to meet the Japanese fleet in battle again and take revenge. And that fleet, well, that fleet is also sunk. Almost entirely. And these two battles are a humiliation to the Russian navy, but also to the Russian nation. Again, you've got to remember what these times are. These are the times when European countries are going around colonizing the rest of the world. Even Belgium, a country you know, right about the size of Serbia, <laughs> come to think of it, uh, they've got a huge chunk of Africa. And here the Russians are getting their navy demolished by the Japanese. Now, as history would show, uh, the European powers may have been underestimating Japanese strength at this point, uh, not giving the Russians enough credit, uh, but rather assuming that since they lost to the Japanese, they must be really bad. Uh, either way, 
this is a lot of egg on Russia's face, and it makes them look very weak, certainly compared to any of the European powers that are not struggling uh, militarily, and this emboldens Austria to act. Well, I should say that emboldens them to act as far as Russia is concerned. Now, they still have to worry about the Ottoman Empire, but not for long. See, in the year 1908, only three years after the sinking of the Russian fleets, uh, in the year 1908, turmoil would erupt within the Ottoman Empire. Uh, in July, a sizable portion of the army revolts. This revolt is backed by a coalition of both educated liberals and union workers, led by a group of intellectuals known as the Young Turks. Uh, and what these people all have in common is a couple of things. First, they seek an elected assembly. The Ottoman Empire had briefly had an elected assembly in the 1800s, before the Sultan disbanded it. Well, the Young Turks want that back. And they also recognize that uh, the Ottoman Empire is weak, and their solution is much like the solution we would see certain other countries taking over the next couple of generations. Uh, their solution is to make this state... Turkish again, to get rid of some of these minorities that are not necessarily loyal to the empire. They want their old glory back, but they don't necessarily see the loss of the empire's non-Turkish people as a bad thing. After all, those people have been nothing but trouble and rebelling, and better off for us to have a strong Turkish state. And due to the weakness of the large multi-ethnic empire overall, right, they've lost a lot of their non-Turkish and non-Muslim territories over the last generation, the Sultan cannot possibly hope to hold anything together without the full support of the Turkish people. So he does what he has to do and gives in to the demands of the young Turks. But this leads to a time of instability and restructuring within the Ottoman Empire, and that gives Austria an opportunity on the uh, Bosnia-Herzegovina question. Now, if you are familiar at all with the history of the Austria-Hungarian Empire, you know that they were ruled by the Habsburg dynasty. And the Habsburgs were nothing if not consummate diplomats. So even though Russia was weakened and the Ottoman Empire was in turmoil, that was not necessarily enough for the Austrians to act. They were still concerned about what Britain and France and their, uh, erstwhile buddies up in Germany might have to think about them annexing uh, Bosnia. So the first thing they do is get the Russians on their side. 
Why would why the Russians if they're concerned about the other great powers? Well, all of those powers are signatories to the Treaty of Berlin. Now, who is concerned most closely with this question in Bosnia-Herzegovina, right? Well, obviously the Ottoman Empire, which is obviously going to object. And the Austrians, who are, of course, going to claim that it's totally legal. The other most interested party is going to be the Russians. If the Russians take a friendly attitude towards this seizure, there's really no reason for Britain or France to get involved. At that point, they really have no skin in the game. They're not going to go to war in the Balkans to defend the Ottoman Empire's right to nominally rule some territory that they don't control anyway. So in September 1908, the Austrian foreign minister has a secret meeting with the Russian foreign minister, and they come to an agreement. Now, accounts of the exact nature of this agreement differ. Because the meeting was secret, there were no minutes actually taken, so exactly what was agreed upon depends who you ask. But the gist of it is that the Austrians will agree uh, that they will annex Bosnia-Herzegovina, but in the process they will give up some Ottoman territory that they had no way of actually holding. Uh, the theory being that handing back this little bit of land would sort of save the Ottomans' face and eliminate or at least reduce any incentive for them to go to war over it. Uh, well, okay, that's what Austria gets out of this secret deal. What about the Russians? Uh, well, in return for Russia taking a friendly attitude towards this Austrian seizure, right, when all the great powers are, they're going to meet to discuss this when it happens. Uh, Russia agrees to take a friendly attitude. And uh, then when the powers, uh, the signatories to the Berlin Agreement uh, get together, Russia is going to demand navigation rights through the Bosporus. The Bosporus being uh, the narrow stretch of water that connects the Mediterranean and the Black Seas. Uh, the Russian Navy has a small Black Sea fleet. If they obtain navigation rights through the Bosporus, which is controlled by the Ottomans, if they get navigation rights, they can become a world-class naval power. And Austria agrees to take a friendly attitude towards this proposal. So... The Russians are on board. Without the Russians, the Serbs can't really do anything about this seizure. The Ottomans can't really do anything about it either. And nobody else is going to care. Uh, what the Austrians need next is a catalyst, some sort of event that will allow them to take action. And that event takes place on October 6th, 1908 in a move that was probably prearranged between Bulgaria and the Austrian Empire. Bulgaria, which is a principality in the Ottoman Empire at this time, declares complete and total independence. Uh, now, like 
some of these other principalities. They had been de facto independent for a while, but now they're going to be fully independent. In the next day, October 7th, 1908, Austria announces that they are formally annexing Bosnia-Herzegovina. The Ottomans protest this seizure, as do the Serbs, oddly enough. The Serbs even mobilize their army. Uh, they see this as naked Austrian aggression, which, let's be honest, it kind of was. Uh, and it's right in their back door. And if the Austrians, who already have a bunch of Serbs in their territory, are now taking over a bunch more majority Serb territory or largely Serb territory, that looks like a threat to Serbia. But again, right, the Austrians have gotten the Russians on their side. And without the Russians to back them, the Serbs really don't dare do anything militarily to stop this Austrian aggression. What they do instead is make any empty threat. They demand uh, that the Austrians give them some of this other majority Serb land that's already inside the Austrian Empire. They're going to go to war. And the Austrians ignore them. Uh, they call their bluff, and the Serbs do not go to war. Uh, and it is left to the major powers to decide what happens. The signatories to the Berlin Treaty meet, and they agree on a settlement. The powers will recognize the seizure of Bosnia-Herzegovina as a fait accompli. In other words, they take no stance on whether or not it was legal. They simply say, what's done is done. It's part of Austria-Hungary now. But in return, Austria must pay the Ottoman Empire 100 million kronen in compensation for Ottoman public lands that are part of this seized territory. And I did the math on that. And that 100 million kronen works out to roughly $500 million in today's money. So... Austria tried to buy Bosnia-Herzegovina for $500 million, and what do you know, they succeeded. But in the process of getting what they wanted, they reneged on a couple of other important agreements. Right, First, much like they had given some assurances to the Russians, Austria had already given some assurances to Italy as well, Italy being one of the powers that had signed the Treaty of Berlin. Well, Austria agreed that if Italy backed them, they would give Italy a strip of land uh, in exchange for their cooperation. Uh, this is actually part of the settlement agreed on by the great powers, but Austria never actually hands the land over this would become a bone of contention over time because Austria and Italy were supposedly allies, but uh, a wedge would slowly form between them, not just over this, but this was a symptom of a broader trend. But Austria's bigger mistake is that they go back on the deal with Russia as well. See, Great Britain at the time being the world's unchallenged number one naval power does not want to see 
any potential rivals. And if Russia gets these navigation rights through the Bosporus and has a powerful Black Sea fleet that can sail out through the Mediterranean and into the world at will, well, that might be a threat. Austria needs Britain not to get involved in the Bosnia question. Britain is the world's number one superpower at the time. It's extremely important that Austria have their support. So they take Britain's side when Russia asks for these navigation rights, fully expecting Austrian backing. In response to this betrayal, the Russian foreign minister calls the Austrian foreign minister, quote, a dirty Jew, unquote. Needless to say, this does not go over well with the Austrian foreign ministry. And maybe I have to take back a little of what I said earlier about the Habsburgs being consummate diplomats, because in this case, the Austrian response may be an overreaction. See, what they do is they publish a series of secret backroom deals they had been making with the Russians since... 1878, since the Berlin Treaty was originally signed to divide up the Balkans. Turns out this whole time, the Russians and the Austrians have been playing footsie under the table as regards the disposition of territory in the Balkans. This is embarrassing for Russia, After all, their propaganda has been about being the defenders of the Slavic people, and in particular of the Orthodox Slavic people, and now it's come out publicly that this is just propaganda for their geopolitical purposes. Uh, Now, Russia in turn protests this Austrian release of documents, pointing out correctly that By releasing all these secret agreements, Austria has permanently damaged her own reputation, right? After all, if you are a country and you're releasing secret agreements, well, nobody else is going to want to make any kind of sensitive or secret negotiations with you because you might make that public. This diplomatic debacle makes no friends for either country, but the outcome of the negotiations between the great powers is that if Serbia were to continue protesting Austria's seizure of Bosnia-Herzegovina, they would be doing so alone. So the government steps down from their threats of war and issues an official statement that says, quote, Serbia recognizes that she has not been injured in her right by the fate accompli created in Bosnia-Herzegovina, and that consequently she will conform to such decision as the powers shall take in regard to Article 25 of the Treaty of Berlin. Submitting to the advice of the great powers, Serbia undertakes already now to abandon the attitude of protest and opposition which she has maintained in regard to the annexation since last autumn, and undertakes further to change the course of her present policy towards Austria-Hungary to live henceforward with the latter on a footing of good neighborliness. 
Conformable to these declarations and confident of the pacific intentions of Austria-Hungary, Serbia will reduce her army to the position of spring 1908 as regards its organization, its distribution, and its effectiveness. She will disarm and disband her volunteers and bands and will prevent the formation of new units of irregulars on its territories. Unquote. So what the Serbian government is saying is that they may not agree with the seizure of Bosnia-Herzegovina, but although it is Serb majority, it was not part of the nation of Serbia, and seeing as the great powers are recognizing the seizure, they're going to go along. Uh, pay attention to the last sentence of their statement, though. She will disarm and disband her volunteers and bands and will prevent the formation of new units of irregulars on its territories. What that part of the statement is talking about are irregular ethnic Serbian militias which are starting to form. And Serbia, as it turns out, the Serbian government, would have a difficult to impossible time of eliminating these bans. Now, this was in part because many government ministers are now on board with these paramilitary uh, ethnic Serb groups. See, in response to the Austrian annexation, right, uh, back on the 8th of October 1908, Several Serbian government ministers met in Belgrade to found a secret society. This organization would be called Nardona Odbrana, which translates roughly as national defense. Much like the Black Hand, this is not an official government organization. It's not as if it is somehow recognized by the state. But it is an organization that nonetheless has power and has its own internal organization, right? For instance, they have membership roles. And the members have a explicit united goal, which is the defense of Serbian minorities in Austria. And to that end, uh, what Nardona... Odbrana does is spreads propaganda in these territories, as well as arming Serb paramilitary groups and funding them. It, do not underestimate the importance of funding, right? When you're talking about paramilitary groups, you've got to remember that these guys have to eat somehow. And a lot of them have families, and if they've got families, they've got to feed their families, right? Uh, you can't work a nine-to-five job when you are fighting in the insurgency. Somebody's got to pay these people. And as it turns out, it is a number of fairly well-off people, primarily in the Serbian capital, who are funding these militias that start causing trouble for the Austrian authorities, both in Bosnia-Herzegovina and in the other Austrian territories with large Serb majorities, or minorities, as the case may be. Over the next three years, 
partially under the influence of the Black Hand, partially under the influence of Narodna Odbrana, and partially because of just natural political forces, a group would form called the Balkan League. The Balkan League is an alliance of Serbia, Bulgaria, Montenegro, and Greece. And what these countries have in common is that they are backed by Russia and they are opposed to Ottoman power. Right, remember, the Ottomans still have a lot of territory in the Balkans at this time, and the Balkan League countries want them out. As this band is forming, right, from 1908 through 1911, these uh, diplomatic arrangements are happening in the back rooms. Uh, even as this is happening, from 1911 to 1912, Italy goes to war with the Ottomans. They invade uh, North Africa, a whole bunch of troops land in Libya. They uh, don't have much success there. They're beaten back not just by the Ottoman army, but by the locals, uh, who in that area are quite loyal to the Ottoman Empire. Uh, where the Italians have more success is in retaking some of the Ottomans' Mediterranean islands. This is largely responsible for getting the Greeks on board with the Balkan League. They want these islands. They realize that the Ottoman Empire is crumbling, and if they don't take them now, Italy or Great Britain or France or one of these other powers is going to take them instead. And even as this is going on, even as the Ottomans can't get a break, uh, you know, now now they're at war with Italy, uh, the Young Turks' Turkicization policies, right, their policies of removing non-Turks and non-Muslims from government offices, well, these policies are causing unrest everywhere in the Ottoman Empire, more or less, outside of core Turkish territories. Right? Anywhere where the majority of people are some non-Turkic ethnicity, well, there's going to be some backlash against these policies, and that backlash is particularly severe in the Balkan territory of Albania. Now, Albania is majority Muslim, but they are an ethnic minority in the Ottoman Empire, and there's also a large Christian minority in Albania, and this leads to a series of rebellions. As a matter of fact, there are three separate Albanian rebellions between 1908 and 1911. In May of 1912, even as the Ottoman Empire is still sorting out this war with Italy, yet another Albanian rebellion breaks out. And this is a rebellion by Christian minorities, and it is successful in taking over much of the north of the country. Now, not incidentally, Albania is the largest Ottoman territory in Europe that remains truly in Ottoman control. So the Balkan League decides to take advantage of this unrest. The first country to declare a war is tiny Montenegro. Again, this very small country... Uh, taking advantage of some larger allies here to uh, throw the first punch. 
and uh, they declare war on the Ottomans on October 8th. But the Montenegrins are safe in doing this because they're fairly far off to the west. Uh, they already have help in that area of the Ottoman Empire because that's where the Albanian rebellion is going on. Where most of the action is going to take place is a ways east of there, in the Thracian plains in southern Bulgaria. The rest of the Balkan League would join the war over the following week, and this was the beginning of what we now call the First Balkan War. And the Black Hand actually had some influence here. One of their leaders uh, was a man named uh, Vojslav Tekansik. Now, Tekansik leads a band of Chetniks. Uh, Chetniks are Serbian volunteer militias, not regular troops. And Chetniks under Tekansik's command enter Albania a few days before Serbia officially enters the war. Now, it is debatable whether this was done with or without orders. Uh, it may have been ordered by Apis uh, right, as part of a black hand conspiracy to ensure that Serbia doesn't back down from war at the last minute. Uh, or it may have been a legitimate paramilitary operation uh, to get the Ottomans on the back foot before the main invasion took place. We're not really sure what was going on there. Either way, on October 18, 1912, King Peter Karadordovic of Serbia makes the following declaration to the Serbian people. And he prefaces this declaration appropriately with the words, To the Serbian people. It reads as follows. Quote, the Turkish governments showed no interest in their duties towards their citizens and turned a deaf ear to all complaints and suggestions. Things got so far out of hand that no one was satisfied with the situation in Turkey in Europe. It became unbearable for the Serbs, the Greeks, and for the Albanians, too. By the grace of God, I have therefore ordered my brave army to join in the holy war to free our brethren and to ensure a better future. In old Serbia, my army will meet not only upon Christian Serbs, but also upon Muslim Serbs, who are equally dear to us. And in addition to them, upon Christian and Muslim Albanians, with whom our people have shared joy and sorrow for thirteen centuries now. To all of them we bring freedom, brotherhood, and equality. Unquote. And this First Balkan War is surprisingly one-sided. The Ottoman Empire is a collapsing empire, but it is still fairly large. You would expect them to beat up on a few small countries quite easily. The problem is that in Anatolia, right, the Asian peninsula that forms the Asian part of modern-day Turkey, at the time, the Ottomans have a very poor rail network. And if you recall, uh, much of their army has been down in Libya fighting the Italians. They don't have a whole lot of troops up in the European part of the Ottoman Empire. 
And because of this poor rail network in Anatolia, the only way they're going to be able to move troops quickly to respond to this uh, Balkan League attack is to move them by ship. But their navy has already been weakened by the war with Italy and twice is defeated by the Greek Navy while trying to break out of the Bosporus and get to North Africa to fetch reinforcements. In the meantime, the Bulgarians launch an initial assault. Uh, the Ottomans rally a successful counterattack over the next couple months, but they're poorly supplied and the supplies and reinforcements that they need are only trickling in. And at this point, the Serbians and the Greeks have fully mobilized their armies. They start showing up in Thrace, and the war's basically over. On May 30th, 1913, just a few months after the war started, a peace treaty is signed between the Ottoman Empire and Bulgaria, Montenegro, Serbia, and Greece. In this treaty, the Ottomans basically given to all the demands of the Balkan League. They cede most of their European territory to these powers. And in addition, they recognize the full independence of Macedonia, adding yet another small nation to the salad bowl that is the Balkans. But even before this peace treaty is signed, the Balkan League is already starting to split up. See, as part of the pre-war arrangements, Bulgaria had been promised some land in Macedonia. But Serbia and Greece have occupied that land instead. If Bulgaria had gotten this land themselves, they would have had territory stretching from the Black Sea to the Aegean. They would have had land on both sides of the Bosporus. They, they could have become a major regional power. And instead, the Serbians are sitting in the Serbian part of Macedonia, and the Greeks are sitting in the Greek part of Macedonia, and Bulgaria is getting very little out of this war. And on top of it, Greece and Serbia show no signs of pulling out. On May 1st, it, almost a month, before the First Balkan War is even over, Greece and Serbia sign an official military alliance. And after the peace treaty is signed, their troops refuse to leave. Bulgaria waits a little over two weeks before declaring war on Serbia and Greece on June 16, 1913. This would kick off what's called the Second Balkan War. For the next month, the Bulgarians would first attack the Serbians. They could not get past the border. The Serbian defenders uh, were too strong. And at that point, the slightly weakened Bulgarian army is driven out of Macedonia by a Greek offensive. And then other powers start jumping on board. Romania, which had won its independence from the Ottoman Empire during the Treaty of Berlin, had remained an ally of the Ottoman Empire, but had stayed out of the First Balkan War on the condition that Bulgaria would give them some land, and Bulgaria had gone back on their promise. Well, now that the Second Balkan War is on, 
Romania goes to war with Bulgaria, and not only do they take the land that they were promised, they keep on marching into Bulgaria all the way up to the suburbs of the capital, uh, the city of Sofia. And not only were they threatening the Bulgarian capital, they were deep into the Bulgarian rear. They were interfering with the ability of the Bulgarians to reinforce or supply armies against the Serbs or the Greeks. And after only two days of Romanian success, the Ottoman Empire declares war on Bulgaria. After all, why not? This is, after all, a free-for-all. And by the end of July, the Ottomans have taken back all the land that Bulgaria, at least, had taken from them in the First Balkan War. And Russia is negotiating a peace deal. And a peace is signed relatively quickly. This is uh, a short war, right? It began on June 16th with a Bulgarian declaration of war, and it ends... Well, actually, it ends with two different treaties. Uh, the first treaty is signed on August 10th. That's the main one. It's signed between Serbia, Romania, Bulgaria, Montenegro, and Greece. So everybody in the conflict except the Ottoman Empire uh, signs this treaty. And in that treaty, the disputed Macedonian territory is divided up between Greece, Serbia, and Bulgaria. Bulgaria actually gets to keep some of that Macedonian land, even though they lost the war. Uh, and in compensation for their contributions... Montenegro receives some land they had wanted from Serbia, uh, right? They don't get part of Macedonia. Uh, instead, they get some land from Serbia that makes more sense geographically uh, from Montenegro's perspective anyway. Uh, and then on September 30th, a second peace treaty is signed between Bulgaria and the Ottoman Empire. And in this peace deal, the Ottomans get back a little bit of the territory that they had lost to Bulgaria in the First Balkan War. Uh, they, in particular, get to take the city of Adern in Thrace. That is the modern name for ancient Adrianople. And... Uh, in return, Bulgaria actually, by the way, gets a another port city on the Black Sea, so this isn't all bad for Bulgaria either. And as a matter of fact, by the end of 1913, Bulgaria and the Ottoman Empire have signed a secret Treaty of Alliance. At the end of the Second Balkan War, most of the countries in the Balkans had gained territory and population, right? compared to where they were before the First Balkan War, right? Over the course of two wars. Uh, the Ottomans lost territory, and uh, Romania grew. She grew by about 5%, but got a little bit of land from Bulgaria. Uh, Bulgaria grew over the course of two wars. Right? She lost some land in the Second War, but you know, all in all benefited. Montenegro grew, grew by more than half. Greece nearly doubled her population, and uh, Serbia as well. Uh, the Serbian population, uh, after these territory gains, which were, you know, again, majority Serbian as well. Uh, these were you know, 
part of the Serb ethnic majority of the country already, uh, their population went from uh, 2.9 to 4.5 million, roughly. Uh, that's, again, an increase of a little more than 50%. Uh, when your country grows by more than 50% over the course of uh, two years, you've had a pretty successful run of it. And again, you know, this liberation, as the Serbs saw it, of the ethnic Serbs in uh, Albania and uh, Macedonia, well, that is a big part of why King Peter I is called Peter the Liberator. And here at the end of 1913, a casual observer could be forgiven for thinking that the Balkans were more peaceful than ever before. A lot of these long-standing issues have been settled. All of these countries have grown, the ethnic tensions in many places have been relieved, now they can get back to enjoying their lives and running their societies, and so it might have been, but... The Balkan Wars had some consequences inside of the Serbian military and government. By the end of the wars, Narodna Obranda and the Black Hand had effectively merged. And at this point, they now make up a sizable, powerful minority in both the military and the press. They control a lot of the media... In these days, basically meaning, you know, newspapers, uh, they control a lot of what people are hearing and informing a lot of public opinion. And Apis has established himself as the overall leader. As a matter of fact, Apis is already active during the Balkan Wars in trying to spread the conflict further to other ethnic Serb areas. He tries to create chaos in Austria by sending an assassin to kill the emperor, uh, Franz Joseph, but the assassin fails. In 1912, Apis sends another assassin, a man who will appear again on our story, a uh, Muslim Serb named Muhammad Mehmedbisik. Well, Muhammad Mehmedbisik would be sent by Apis with a poison dagger... Seems kind of literary, maybe, but there you go. He's sent with a poison dagger to kill the Austrian governor of Bosnia-Herzegovina, a man named General Oskar Potiorek, who will also appear later in our story, but Mehmed Besik fails. Uh, he manages to uh, get out of Bosnia without getting caught and returns to Serbia. And by 1914, the Black Hand may not have been successful yet at assassinating any foreign leaders, but they do have over 2,500 active members, and they are growing. One of these members is a young Bosnian Serb, meaning a ethnic Serbian young man from Bosnia, by the name of Gavrilo Princip. Princip grew up poor in a small village. Uh, he was sickly and uh, under height and weight for his age, his entire life. And as a teenager, 
his family moved to Sarajevo, and he and some Serb friends uh, liked to agitate the local Austrian authorities. They scrawled graffiti on some walls and things like that. But in 1910, Princip had a political awakening, what modern people might call a radicalization. When Princip was 16 years old, a Serb nationalist named Bogdan Zaric tried to kill an Austrian military officer. Uh, and Zaryich fired five shots from his revolver. All of them failed to kill the officer, uh, and with his sixth round, uh, Zaryich took his own life. Zaryich becomes a symbol for Serb nationalists in Bosnia, and it so happens that this incident occurred just in front of Princip's apartment. Supposedly, uh, at one point uh, when he initially found out about this, it was because he came across the scene with Zariak's blood still wet on the pavement. And in less than a year, in 1911, at the age of 17, Princip had joined a group called Young Bosnia. This was a Serb nationalist organization and they did things like organizing anti-Hapsburg rallies and even providing some aid to uh, paramilitary groups. And in 1912, Princip was ultimately expelled from school for attending one of these anti-Hapsburg rallies. Again, uh, about a year later, in 1913, things ratcheted up a notch again. Uh, the Austrian government, in response to activities by Serbian guerrilla groups, uh, they engaged in a crackdown on Serbs in Bosnia-Herzegovina in particular. Uh, among other things, they closed a number of Serbian-language schools, and they banned Serbian social clubs. Now, some of these clubs were being used to organize against the occupying Austrians, but most of them were just social clubs, and this made people angry. It inflamed the population to the point that many of the local people, particularly young men who had become radicalized, emigrated to Serbia to look for help from their fellow Serbs. And when Princip goes to Serbia, he goes to Belgrade, and he joins a Serbian paramilitary organization, part of the uh, Narodna Ordana Black Hand organization uh, under the leadership of none other than Vojislav Tkansik, that is, that uh, Chechnik leader who had maybe prematurely, maybe not attacked Albania, right? Well, that guy is still active, and uh, he ends up recruiting uh, Princip along with... Uh, Mohammed Mehmedbisik, the fellow with the poison dagger, he, uh, Mehmedbisik, and five others uh, are trained to assassinate somebody. And that somebody is none other than the heir to the Austrian throne, a man named Archduke Franz Ferdinand. 
And these young men are trained, and when their training is complete, they are sent back to the capital of Bosnia-Herzegovina, Sarajevo, to await an opportunity. So, why would anyone in Blackhand want to kill Franz Ferdinand in particular? As it turns out, ironically, it's because Franz Ferdinand was ardently and publicly pro-Serb. Now, Franz Joseph, the Austrian emperor at the time, he was old, and the fear was that upon his death, when Franz Ferdinand took over, policies would change in the ethnic Serb parts of the Austrian Empire, and they would change in the Serbs' favor, and that therefore all of these local Serb populations who wanted to be part of Serbia would not want to leave the Austrian Empire anymore. Certainly, they wouldn't want to leave badly enough to go join a guerrilla terrorist movement. So, if Black Hand wants Serbia to eventually get this territory, they need those local Serb populations to remain dissatisfied. They actually need an anti-Serb Austrian leader. Now, the question over who ordered the assassination of Franz Ferdinand is still open. Some believe that Apis ordered it, and others believe that it was a rogue operation by Major Tkansik. There's... Some good evidence for both sides. It's one of those interesting historical mysteries that, if you want to, you could really delve into that. Entire books have been written just about this plot here and uh, how it unfolded. What we do know for sure is that this plan was not approved by the overall senior leadership of Black Hand. So whether it was an order from Apis or a rogop by Tkansik, Apis does ultimately send an agent to Sarajevo uh, to meet with uh, one of the uh, would-be assassins just days before the assassination. Uh, was he trying to stop them? Uh, that is what he would claim later, but we don't actually know what went on between uh, that messenger and the person he met with. See, the conspirator he met with uh, was a man named Danilo Illich, and well, he would be executed by the Austrians uh, shortly after the assassination. We don't really get to hear his complete side of the story. Uh, furthermore, Tekonsik, uh would go on to be killed in action in 1915. We never really get to hear his side of the story, right? Sometimes these things happen and people retire and they're old and in their 80s they write a tell-all memoir where we find things out. Right? Well, this does not happen here. As we'll see, Apis is also dead by the end of the war. So all the major players really don't get to tell their story at a later time. 
with any kind of historical hindsight. Now, without getting too far off into the weeds on this conspiracy, the other interesting thing we know is that the conspirators found out how to get to the Archduke from an anonymous letter that was sent to them. It wasn't actually a letter. It was actually a newspaper clipping of an announcement of the Archduke's visit to Sarajevo. Conveniently enough, along with the parade route, because all of this information had been publicly published. We don't know who the anonymous source is, but the existence of this message is sort of evidence that maybe this really was a rogue operation by Tekansik and that Apis wasn't involved. Why? Because it indicates to us that he was not sending that messenger to tell the conspirators how to get to the Archduke. We don't know what the messenger was sent to say, but considering the existence of this newspaper clipping, it doesn't really make sense to send a messenger, right? This is a spy operation. When you're doing spy stuff, the number one rule is don't get caught. And if you're trying not to get caught, it doesn't make sense to send the same message two different ways. Right? That's two different ways that message might get intercepted. Again, this is evidence, though. It's not proof that Apis was not involved. It's another interesting facet to the mystery. The night before Archduke Franz Ferdinand arrived in Sarajevo, the seven conspirators would visit the grave of Bogdan Zarich, which is right there in Sarajevo. Franz Ferdinand would arrive in Sarajevo early in the morning on July 28, 1914. Officially, he is there to inspect his army, but the country's not at war at the time. They're not even, as far as they know, facing a war anytime soon. This is really a public relations trip, right? Remember, this is a part of the country where there is uh, unrest going on, mostly with the local Serbian population, not happy with uh, the crackdowns on some of their freedoms. And Franz Ferdinand is there on a goodwill mission, right? Uh, Franz Joseph is pushing 90 years old. So if the people see Franz Ferdinand as their friend, it could really go a long way towards breaking up a lot of that hostility towards Austrian rule. The Archduke, his wife Sophie, and uh, Governor Oscar Potiorek would share the third car in a motorcade to go from the railway station to the military barracks. Now, Potiorek had wanted to line the streets of Sarajevo with troops. He felt this was best for security. He feared an attempt on the Archduke's life. But Franz Ferdinand thought that this would offend the local citizens. Again, this is a goodwill trip. If you have that kind of military security with... uh, the people being blocked off from the streets and everything, 
it sends the wrong message. Right? Franz Ferdinand is coming as a friend to the Serbs, not as an occupier. So, at his demand, uh, local police are used for security instead. The problem with this is that there are only 60 police officers on duty along the entire parade route. There simply aren't enough of them to provide adequate security for the uh, Archduke's entire itinerary. But the first uh, part of the day goes okay. They stop at the military barracks, and while they are there, the assassins are preparing to strike. See, at 10 a.m., the motorcade is scheduled to leave the military barracks and head towards town hall. Remember, the Austrian newspapers had very helpfully published all of this information in advance, which is something that no security team for any important person would ever think of doing these days. But these were simpler times, and the assassins knew exactly what route the Archduke's motorcade would be taking from the barracks to the town hall. So they position themselves at various points along the route. In total, there are six men waiting to strike, and uh, Danilo Illich uh, is the fixer. So he has, right, he was the one responsible for meeting with Apis's messenger, uh, whatever may have been said, and he's been responsible for smuggling guns and bombs into the country to arm the assassins. They receive from him an assortment of guns, bombs, and uh, each one of them, regardless of how he's armed, also gets a cyanide pill, uh, lest they should be captured. And Mohammed Mehmedbisik is the first assassin in line, right? He is, uh, again, the fellow with the poison dagger who failed to kill Potiorek the first time. Well, now he's standing there with a bomb, and as he's getting ready to pull it out of his coat and arm it and throw it, a police officer walks up behind him, so he does not act. Uh, the next assassin is a young man named Vaso Kubrilovich. Uh, he's standing right next to Mehmed Besik with both a pistol and a bomb, but you know that police officer is right there, so he also doesn't act. And then the motorcade passes the third assassin. The third assassin is a young man named Nedelkio Kebrinovich, and he throws his bomb, but it doesn't land in the car. It bounces off the back of the car, and at that point, all the drivers in the motorcade lay on the gas, and the cars speed past the remaining three assassins. Kibrinovich tries to commit suicide before he can be captured. He takes his cyanide pill and jumps off a bridge, and you would think that would do it. Unfortunately, the pills that the assassins had been issued were old and expired, and it just made him throw up. And there was a drought at the time, so the river was only a few inches deep, and he didn't drown. Uh, instead, he is captured by the crowd and beaten very badly before the police are able to get to him and take him into custody. 
Now, uh, as I said, the motorcade after uh, Kabrinovich threw the bomb had sped off. It went past the remaining three assassins faster uh, than anybody could uh, react and reliably take a shot at Franz Ferdinand. The motorcade arrives at Town Hall shortly thereafter, and uh, Franz Ferdinand is angry. Uh, he greets the mayor, and he says, quote, Mr. Mayor, I came here on a visit, and I am greeted with bombs. It is outrageous. Unquote. Sophie talks to him. Apparently, she calms him down a little bit, and he agrees to give uh, his prepared speech. The mayor gives his speech, welcoming the Archduke to the town. He doesn't even mention the attempted assassination. And then it is Archduke Franz Ferdinand's turn to speak. And he gives his prepared remarks, but then he actually thanks the people of Sarajevo for their warm welcome and uh, says that he can see from the delighted expressions of the crowd that uh, they are glad that the assassins failed. He's playing a propaganda game, too. Don't forget. Right? He is a friend of the Serbs. And he is not going to let some fringe terrorist group, uh, keep him from you know, potentially eventually strengthening the Austrian Empire by gaining the loyalty of this very large and influential minority group. Uh, but history here would intervene with a series of bizarre coincidences that gave us a major disaster that was World War I. See, the party has a change of plans at that point. Uh, they decide to go to the local hospital to visit the wounded from the bombing. Right, The bomb bounced off the Archduke's car, but it did injure some people in the motorcade, uh, and they're being treated right now, so the Archduke and Sophie decide to go visit and uh, for speed purposes, they decide that uh, they're not going to take the direct route to the hospital. See, the direct route would take them through some winding back streets in the city where they could get caught up there, and it's faster, actually, to take the slightly longer route, but to follow the main road where the original parade, right, had taken them from the military-based town hall. Well, they're taking that same road back, and those three remaining assassins who had given up on any chance of even seeing the Archduke that day, well, one of them is still in the area. That assassin is Gavrilo Princip. Uh, he has also left the parade route, though. He's gone about a block away to stop in front of a delicatessen, because he thinks that the Archduke might go to the hospital, and that delicatessen is on the road to the hospital. Well, great, you might think. The Archduke's changed his plans and is actually taking the main parade route. That's good. Well, what happens is that uh, the change in plans is not communicated to the drivers. Ironically, the aide uh, to Potiorek, uh, one of his uh, aides, who was supposed to communicate this order to the drivers, 
was actually one of the people injured by the bombing and was already at the hospital. So as a result, instead of continuing on the parade route as they're supposed to, the two lead cars turn off to take this side street towards the hospital, right past the delicatessen where Gavrilo Princip is waiting. Uh, the driver of the Archduke's car follows, but Potiorek is in the back seat, and he yells at the driver to turn around and get back onto the parade route. And the driver follows his orders. He stops the car and puts it in reverse. Now, this is an old car. Old cars had a tendency to stall, especially when you were changing gears. This is not a modern vehicle. This is a 1910 Grafenstift. And when the driver goes to put it in reverse, the engine stalls. Right in front of Gavrilo Princip, you could not have stalled that engine in a worse spot in the entire city of Sarajevo. And Princip takes his chance. At approximately 10.45 a.m. on June 28, 1914, Gavrilo Princip shoots Franz Ferdinand in the jugular. And he shoots Franz Ferdinand's wife, Sophie, in the abdomen, although he would later claim that when he shot Sophie, he was aiming for Governor Potiorek. Princip is arrested on the spot, and uh, the Archduke and Sophie are immediately rushed to the governor's mansion, uh, where there's a doctor on hand, uh, and nobody even realizes that Sophie has been shot until they get there. Uh, when she's shot, she immediately slumps over into Franz Ferdinand's lap, and everyone just thinks she has fainted at the sight of him being shot in the jugular. Uh, now, he actually is still alive. And when they get to the governor's mansion, they realize that Sophie has also been shot. And even as the doctors are trying to see to the Archduke, he won't let them look at him. He's waving them away, keeps saying over and over again, it is nothing, and trying to get to Sophie. And he says to her, Sophie, Sophie, don't die. Live for our children. And he tells the doctors again, it is nothing before the death rattle sets into his throat, and he passes, and by 11.30 a.m., both Archduke friends Ferdinand and Sophie are dead. For the assassins, what this would mean was that Kibrinovich and Ilik would be hanged, and the rest would get long prison terms. This would include Gavilo Princip, actually. By Austrian law at the time, no one under the age of 20 could be executed, and uh, Princip was 19 years old when he pulled that trigger. But ultimately, his youth does not save him. Remember, he's a small, sickly fellow, and he ultimately contracts tuberculosis in prison, loses an arm, and dies before the end of World War I. Really, the 
only one of these people to have a sort of happy ending is Mehmed Besik, the guy with the poison dagger. He actually manages to escape Bosnia and get back to Serbia. He would survive the war, and afterwards he would then return back to Sarajevo, where he would immediately receive a full pardon from the Serb-dominated post-war government, and there he would live until 1943, when, ironically, he would meet his end at the hands of a Croat nationalist fascist militia. But go figure, that's how things happen in the Balkans. Now, the Serbian response in the aftermath of this assassination is particularly inept. And it's so inept that it's part of the reason some people think the assassination may have been orchestrated by Apis after all. See, initially, Serbia's ambassadors in Austria, Hungary, and in France make the bizarre claim that the Serbian government had already warned both of those countries of the impending assassination. Now, it's a weird thing to say because, of course, either of those countries would know if they had been warned of this, and they hadn't. As a matter of fact, uh, Austrian uh, diplomats had been concerned that there might be an attempted assassination and had been pressing the Serbs to take action. And then, to make things worse, almost immediately after the Serbian ambassadors make this claim, they walk that back and say, no, the Serbian government, in fact, had no advanced knowledge whatsoever of this assassination attempt. Maybe this was simply a result of different government ministers and different diplomats not being on the same page. Or maybe it's evidence that this assassination conspiracy really did go all the way to the top in the Serbian government. Who knows? Regardless, Governor Potiorek takes this personally. Right? Not only was he there... But this is, after all, the territory, right, Bosnia, uh, where he is the military governor. And this is embarrassing to him that the heir to the throne was assassinated in his territory. Uh, so he personally oversees this initial Austrian investigation into the assassination. Uh, the assassins are all interrogated, the physical evidence is examined, and uh, a week after... The initial assassination, on July 5th, 1914, Potiorek makes his initial report to the Austrian government. And, well, the bombshell part of this report is that he states that Major Tekancic had directed this assassination. That is a tie from some Serbian terrorists in Bosnia directly to the Serbian military. And the Austrian government does what most countries would do if this had happened. They ask the Serbians to punish whatever military officers had been involved in the conspiracy. Now, all of this is complicated by some political things going on inside of Serbia at the time. Uh, first off, to begin with, 
right? As we talked about earlier, it's possible that the Serbian government can't turn over these conspirators, right? Maybe the conspirators are too powerful. Maybe if the government tries to do this, they could be facing a coup. Wouldn't be the first time in recent memory that the Serbian government had had to deal with a coup. The other complication is that the Serbian Prime Minister, uh, Nikola Pasic, is up for re-election in a little over a month. He's up for re-election on August 14th. Well, Pasic is fiercely pro-democratic. And this had not been a problem uh, for most of uh, King Peter's reign. But earlier in 1914, Peter stepped down. Right? He retired and he gave the day-to-day -day duties of the kingship to his son, Prince Alexander. And Alexander is more of an autocrat. He really wants to go back to the old days where the king had a lot more power. And... Alexander is somewhat in favor of not punishing the assassins, and so is public opinion. Right, so Pasek is in a bind here. On the one hand, if he tries to arrest the conspirators, he's potentially avoiding uh, angering Austria further, but he's going to alienate the electorate, He's going to alienate the acting king, and he's going to alienate most of the rest of the government. On the other hand, if he sort of delays, well, he can win re-election in August. And then maybe he can take some sort of action to placate the Austrians. Well, Austria is not prepared to be patient. It is. A matter of fact, over the past few years, they've become less and less inclined to be friendly towards Serbia, right? We had the incidents that happened in the Balkan Wars with the Serbians uh, and other Balkan powers taking a great deal of territory from the Ottoman Empire. Uh, they see the Serbians eyeing Serb-majority territory in Austria-Hungary. Uh, in their eyes, a war is just a matter of time anyway, and if they attack Serbia now, they actually have an excuse, right? Here is this uh, Serb nationalist terrorist backed by at least some elements of the Serbian military who assassinated the Archduke. Well, what more excuse do you need to go to war? But Austria still has to worry about Russia. If they attack Serbia, they will in turn be attacked by the Russian Empire. So they look to their own allies. They look to Germany. And the Austrian ambassador asks very simply uh, if Germany will support Austria in a war against Serbia. And the Germans tell them yes. Meanwhile, the French and Russian ambassadors are meeting, right? The two countries have an existing alliance, but it doesn't extend to defending Serbia. Well, France and Russia changed that agreement to extend to defending Serbia. So now, if Austria attacks Serbia, 
Russia will attack Austria and Germany will attack Russia, whereby France will go to war with Germany and Austria and everybody's going to be at war. Well, why does France want to do this? They feel threatened by Germany. If they stand by and let Austria and Germany together beat up on Russia and Serbia and you know, probably win and take a bunch of land, well, they're going to be that much stronger uh, and France is going to be in that much more danger. So from their perspective, if this war is going to happen, they had better get involved now and make sure that uh, Germany does not get any more powerful as a result of this. The agreement between France and Russia, or should I say the amended agreement between France and Russia, is published on July 23, 1914. And the timing is unfortunate because it comes just a few hours before the Austrian government announces an ultimatum to Serbia. The Austrian ultimatum of July 23, 1914, took war from being a possibility to a near certainty. I'm going to read most of it here, skipping the first few paragraphs, and it's a bit long, but I want to read it all because... There are two important things to note here. It's not just the content that's important. It's also the tone. It's how this ultimatum is delivered that is fascinating from a historical perspective. The Austrian ultimatum reads, in part, quote, it is clear from the statements and confessions of the criminal authors of the assassination of the 28th of June that the murder at Sarajevo was conceived at Belgrade, that the murderers received the weapons and the bombs with which they were equipped from Serbian officers and officials who belonged to the Narodna Odbrana, and finally, that the dispatch of the criminals and of their weapons to Bosnia was arranged and effected under the conduct of Serbian frontier authorities. The results brought out by the inquiry no longer permit the imperial and royal government to maintain the attitude of patient tolerance which it has observed for years towards those agitations which center at Belgrade and are spread thence into the territories of the monarchy. Instead, these results impose upon the imperial and royal government the obligation to put an end to those intrigues which constitute a standing menace to the peace of the monarchy. In order to attain this end, the imperial and royal government finds itself compelled to demand that the Serbian government give official assurance that it will condemn the propaganda directed against Austria-Hungary. That is to say, the whole body of the efforts whose ultimate object it is to separate from the monarchy territories that belong to it, and that it will obligate itself to suppress with all the means at its command this criminal and terroristic propaganda. In order to give these assurances a character of solemnity, the Royal Serbian Government will publish on the first page of its official organ of July 26th the following declaration. Now, let me stop here for a second. 
the Austrian government is now literally printing out the exact words that they are demanding the Serbian government publish to its military. Quote, the Royal Serbian government condemns the propaganda directed against Austria-Hungary. That is to say, the whole body of the efforts whose ultimate object it is to separate from the Austro-Hungarian monarchy's territories that belong to it. And it most sincerely regrets the dreadful consequences of these criminal transactions. The Royal Serbian government regrets that Serbian officers and officials should have taken part in the above-mentioned propaganda and thus have endangered the friendly and neighborly relations to the cultivation of which the royal government had most solemnly pledged itself by its declarations of March 31st, 1909. Let me stop again here. That is the declaration published at the end of the Balkan crisis, right? When Austria had initially seized Bosnia-Herzegovina to begin with. And this statement that the Austrians want the Serbian government to publish continues, quote, The royal government, which disapproves and repels every idea and every attempt to interfere in the destinies of the population of whatever portion of Austria-Hungary, regards it as its duty most expressly to call attention of the officers, officials, and the whole population of the kingdom to the fact that for the future it will proceed with the utmost rigor against any persons who shall become guilty of any such activities, which the government will bend every effort to prevent and to suppress. And that ends the statement that the Austrians are demanding that the Serbians publish. And the ultimatum goes on, says, quote, This declaration shall be brought to the attention of the royal army simultaneously by an order of the day from His Majesty the King and by publication in the official organ of the army. The royal Serbian government will furthermore pledge itself, one, to suppress every publication which shall incite hatred and contempt of the monarchy and the general tendency of which shall be directed against the territorial integrity of the latter. 2. To proceed at once to the dissolution of the Narodna Odbrana, to confiscate all of its means of propaganda, and in the same manner to proceed against the other unions and associations in Serbia which occupy themselves with propaganda against Austria-Hungary. The royal government will take such measures as are necessary to make sure that the dissolved associations may not continue their activities under other names or in other forms. 3. To eliminate without delay from public instruction in Serbia everything, whether connected with the teaching corps or with the methods of teaching, that serves or may serve to nourish the propaganda against Austria-Hungary. 4. To remove from the military and administrative service in general all officers and officials who have been guilty of carrying on the propaganda against Austria-Hungary, whose names the imperial and royal government reserves the right to make known to the royal government when communicating the material evidence now in its possession. Okay, I'm going to stop here after these first four points because that's a little bit to digest, right? What the Austrians are first demanding is the shutting down of any type of civic organization that is Serb nationalist, that prints anything that may be unflattering to Austro-Hungary. 
Well, that's certainly going to put an end to the activities of any paramilitary groups, but it's also going to sweep up just like ordinary newspapers. And, well, Serbia can't do that. They have freedom of the press. They have freedom of speech. Right? The Austrians are demanding that they change their school textbooks. And furthermore, that they actually remove any public officials on a list to be provided from Austria. Okay, how do you call yourself a sovereign nation if you are giving in to those kinds of demands, if another country can literally fire anyone they want in your government? And let's not forget also that the Serbs have all too recently been in that situation. It was only a generation earlier that they were a principality under the Ottoman Empire. They're never going to agree to this. The Austrian ultimatum goes on. Five, to agree to the cooperation in Serbia of the organs of the imperial and royal government in the suppression of the subversive movement directed against the integrity of the monarchy. Okay, that is a little bit confusing. But what it means is that Austrian representatives are supposed to be allowed into Serbia to make sure that nothing is being printed that the Austrian government disapproves of. All right, continuing, number six, to institute a judicial inquiry against every participant in the conspiracy of the 28th of June who may be found in Serbian territory. The organs of the imperial and royal government delegated for this purpose will take part in the proceedings held for this purpose. Okay, so a somewhat reasonable demand, actually very reasonable, right? Arrest anybody who was involved in the assassination of the Archduke, but then Austria demands that these anonymous Austrian officials who are working on propaganda are also supposed to take part in the trial. Well, that doesn't make sense. Again, no sovereign nation can accept this sort of interference. The ultimatum goes on. Number seven, to undertake with all haste the arrest of Major Vojslav Takonsik and of one Milan Siganovic, a Serbian official who have been compromised by the results of the inquiry. Okay, that one is probably one of the few demands that actually makes a whole lot of sense in real-world terms, right? Turn over these specific people who did this specific thing to our country. Right? But the ultimatum goes on. Number eight, by efficient measures to prevent the participation of Serbian authorities in the smuggling of weapons and explosives across the frontier to dismiss from the service and to punish severely those members of the frontier service who assisted the authors of the crime of Sarajevo to cross the frontier. So what they're saying here is stop sending weapons to serve militias in our country and arrest the people who did that. Again, another demand that we could see a reasonable country making. Going back to the ultimatum number nine. To make explanations to the imperial and royal government concerning the unjustifiable utterances of high Serbian functionaries in Serbia and abroad, who without regard for their official position have not hesitated to express themselves in a manner hostile towards Austria-Hungary since the assassination of the 28th of June. 
10. To inform the imperial and royal government without delay of the execution of the measures comprised in the foregoing points. So, what they're saying here is that the Serbian government must justify private statements of various government officials about Austria-Hungary and that they have to justify them to the satisfaction of the Austrian government. How do you meet that bar? And then they must keep the Austrians appraised of their progress in meeting all ten of these demands. And the ultimatum concludes, The imperial and royal government awaits the reply of the royal government by Saturday the 25th instant at 6 p.m. at the latest. Well, this ultimatum was issued on the 23rd. Right, so they are giving Serbia two days, 48 hours, to respond. Now, why would they make an ultimatum that is clearly designed to be virtually impossible to meet, and even if the Serbs could meet it, virtually designed to be rejected? If you heard all that, none of that is terribly diplomatic or designed to do anything other than put the Serbs back against the wall. And the obvious conclusion is that by this point, just as France and Russia and Germany had all decided that if this war is going to happen, it had better happen now, Austria, too, had decided that it was time for this Serbian war to happen. On the other hand, it seems like the Russians and the French, and certainly the British, most certainly the British, are still trying to find some way to avoid this war. The Russians are pressuring the Serbs to meet some of the demands, to make some kind of counteroffer. So, Nikola Pasic and his cabinet meet, and under Russian pressure, uh, five minutes before the deadline, Pasek personally hand-delivers the Serbian counteroffer to the Russian ambassador. Now, I'm not going to read the whole thing. Uh, I will just read the opening section and, you know, kind of sum up the rest. But this, this is kind of emblematic of the, the entire nature of the Serbian response. Uh, but it's... The entire thing is brilliantly written. It begins, quote, The royal government has received the communication of the imperial and royal government of the 23rd and is convinced that its reply will dissipate any misunderstanding which threatens to destroy the friendly and neighborly relations between the Austrian monarchy and the kingdom of Serbia. The royal government is conscious that nowhere have there been renewed protests against the great neighborly monarchy like those which at one time were expressed in the Skupicina, that is the uh, Serbian uh, assembly, uh, as well as in the declaration and actions of the responsible representatives of the state at that time, and which were terminated by the Serbian declaration of March 31, 1909. Furthermore, that since that time, neither the different corporations of the kingdom nor the officials have made an attempt to alter the political and judicial condition created in Bosnia and Herzegovina. 
The royal government states that the INR, that's imperial and royal Austrian government, the royal government states that the INR government has made no protestation in this sense, excepting in the case of a textbook, in regard to which the INR government has received an entirely satisfactory explanation. I'm going to stop there briefly. That's referring to the books in the schools. There was one book with one example of anti-Austrian propaganda, apparently. But this Serbian response goes on. Serbia has given during the time of the Balkan crisis in numerous cases evidence of her pacific and moderate policy, and it is only owing to Serbia and the sacrifices which she has brought in the interest of the peace of Europe that this peace has been preserved. The royal government cannot be made responsible for expressions of a private character. As, for instance, newspaper articles and the peaceable work of societies, expressions which are of very common appearance in other countries and which ordinarily are not under the control of the state. This all the less as the royal government has shown great courtesy in the solution of a whole series of questions which have arisen between Serbia and Austria-Hungary, whereby it has succeeded to solve the greater number thereof in favor of the progress of both countries. Unquote. Now, this goes on and on and on, but basically... What this document does is uh, agrees to arrest those people responsible if the Austrians can present evidence. Uh, it agrees to stop the arms smuggling across the border. Uh, but then very slyly, uh, essentially, the government says, look, we don't have power to do the things that you, Austria, are asking us to do. We have a constitutional system. And uh, Pasik actually promises to put to the Assembly the question of amending the Constitution in order to meet all those demands. Now, obviously, this is an empty promise, right? The Assembly is never going to agree to amend the Serbian Constitution to meet all of these Austrian demands, right? Pasik's just blowing smoke. But he is also showing on the world stage that he's willing to at least negotiate. And this puts Austria in a bind because if they don't at least consider the offer, well, then they go right back to looking like the aggressors. So they agree to consider the offer, but both sides know what's going on. As a matter of fact, both sides have already started mobilizing their militaries, right? The ultimatum was sent on July 23rd. Well, both Serbia and Austria-Hungary have been mobilizing on July 24th and 25th. Britain comes in at the last minute and offers to mediate. Kaiser Wilhelm of Germany apparently has a change of heart and asks Austria to reconsider... But at this point, it's too late because, well, Russia has already started mobilizing. And that starts the ball rolling on processes that cannot be stopped. Now, I don't want to get into a blow-by-blow -blow history of the first phase of World War I here. Entire books have been written about very brief parts of this war. Uh, case in point, Barbara Tuckman's The Guns of August, about uh, the month that will follow 
uh, the outbreak of war. But let me just sum up the gist of it for people who may not be entirely familiar with what happened. Uh, as I said, on July 25th, the uh, the Serbians issue their counteroffer. The Austrians agree to consider it, but everybody's already mobilizing. Uh, now, you might think, well, why is this a big deal? Sure, uh, they're mobilizing. What does that mean? They're, you know, handing out weapons to their troops. They're getting their uh, troops arrayed in position. They're shipping supplies wherever they need to be shipped. You know, if they've got artillery, they're getting their artillery in position. But all those things can be undone, right? I mean, you just call everybody home and put all the weapons back in the armory and you've demobilized. And in most cases, that would be a correct analysis. But Germany in particular is in a pickle. See, they are facing a war on two fronts. Right? They are facing a war against Russia in their east, and they are facing a war against France in the west. They are facing the very real prospect of getting squeezed in a vice. But the mobilization phase gives them an opportunity. Right? Russia, as we've already talked about, is a very large country. And compared to all of these other powers, it does not have very good infrastructure. And what that means is that when the Tsar calls up his armies, it's going to take a long time, right, something on the order of three months, according to pre-war estimates, for enough Russian troops to be in the field to actually pose a threat to Germany. What that means is that during this long period of Russian mobilization, Germany has a window in which they can fight France all by herself. And so the German pre-war plans call for knocking France out of the war before Russia has a chance to mobilize. Right? If you're being attacked by two guys, one from each side, if you can take out one of those guys real fast, you can turn around and fight the other guy. It makes sense. Unfortunately, the border between Germany and France is heavily fortified. There is absolutely no way that the German army is simply going to punch directly through the fortified French border and win a war in a short period of time. They need to go around the side of that French border fortification, and they could do that, uh, well, up north, because there's no type of defenses on the French border with Belgium, because Belgium is a neutral country. Well, the problem there, of course, is that to get to the French border with Belgium, Germany has to send its army through Belgium. Belgium, being a neutral country, refuses to allow this. So, as its very first move of World War I, Germany invades a neutral country. And Britain, which up till this point was staying out of the war, now has to get involved. Why? Because they have guaranteed Belgium's neutrality. If they don't go to war... They're going back on their word. 
that means they can forget about anybody allying with them again. That would put them in great danger in the long run if they do not then go to war against Germany. So within just a few weeks, you've gone from Europe being totally at peace to a war of Austria, Hungary, and Germany on the one side against Russia, France, Britain, well, and Serbia and Belgium on the other side. And the uh, one side, the German and Austria-Hungarian powers come to be known as the Central Powers because they're sort of in the middle of the map. And uh, the uh, other side has two different names. Officially, they're called the Triple Entente. That refers to the Triple Alliance between France, Great Britain, and Russia. Uh, later on, they would also be called just the Allies, much like the anti-German side were called the Allies in World War II. Well, same thing in World War I. Either way, uh, all of this begins on July 28th, 1914, at 11 a.m., when Austria officially declares war on Serbia. And that kicks over this whole row of dominoes where the entire world very quickly is at war. Right? And when I say the entire world, I'm not being Eurocentric either. Right? France and Britain have colonial empires that are global. France has all kinds of territory in Africa, for instance. Well, those African troops would all see action. I mean, just as an example, there were over 200,000 French Senegalese troops in Europe by the end of the war. That is a global war. Great Britain has the Commonwealth nations, right? Canada, New Zealand, Australia, they also have India. They can call on India to go to war. That is a world war, you know, leaving aside the fact that the U.S. and Japan and a few other countries would also get involved before the end of it. But this is not the story of World War I. This is Serbia's story. And Serbia faced a dire situation in 1914, right? Remember, this is a landlocked country. It makes them difficult to supply. They are also surrounded by uh, Austria-Hungary on three sides. To the west, you will have the district of Bosnia-Herzegovina, uh, and uh, the border there is along a river called the Drina River, uh, and that flows north to meet another river called the Sava. The Sava kind of runs east, and that you know horizontal line forms like the northeastern border of Serbia until the Sava River meets up with the Danube. Now, the Danube is kind of flowing at a diagonal. It's, it's flowing from roughly northwest to roughly southeast. So when it hits the uh, eastbound Sava River, it forms a point, right, where the two rivers have their junction. And in that point, and that river junction, is the city of Belgrade. Literally across those two rivers from Austria-Hungary. 
that makes Belgrade in particular, the Serbian capital, very difficult to defend. But the first Austrian invasion does not come across the Sava or the Danube into Belgrade. Instead, it comes from the west, from Bosnia-Herzegovina across the Drina River. And it's commanded by that Austrian governor we all know and love, Oskar Potiorek. And in August 1914, even as German troops are marching into Belgium, Austrian troops are swarming across the Drina River into Serbia. In the first few weeks of the war, the Serbian army steadily falls back uh, in the face of this Austrian attack. At this time, the Serbian army is very poorly supplied. Uh, they have virtually no artillery, and not even all of their men really have rifles yet. Uh, this is a problem against an Austrian army that at this early phase in the war, at least, is pretty well supplied. The Serbs are only able to slow the Austrians down, and by December 2nd, Potiorek's troops have entered Belgrade and taken the city. In this Austrian occupation of late 1914 and early 1915 is fairly brutal. In his book, Germany Ascendant, The Eastern Front 1915, British historian Prit Batar describes the situation in Serbia at this time. He says, quote, The conduct of the army towards civilians during its brief occupation of northwest Serbia was frequently bad. In addition to random and systematic killings, there was widespread looting and rape. There appear to have been many reasons for this, ranging from racial stereotyping of the Serbs as enemies of the empire to a deep-rooted fear of guerrillas. This latter was fed by the fact that the Serbian army lacked sufficient uniforms for all the men who were mobilized to defend the nation. This extra aspect of the fighting added both to the devastation of the region and to the determination of the Serbs to continue fighting as long as they possibly could. Unquote. When Batar says devastation, he's not just talking about bombs and bullets. He's talking about disease. Uh, the invading armies and also some of the retreating Serbian troops are spreading typhus and cholera around the countryside. Uh, over the course of this winter, tens of thousands of Serbs would die not due to anything directly related to the war, but because of disease. <sighs> However, as you may have gathered from uh, the fact that you know, we referred to this temporary occupation, uh, the Austrians are not actually able to hold on to Belgrade or anything else in Serbia for the time being. Potiorek has overextended his lines. The infrastructure around the Drina River is very poor, particularly on the Bosnian side, and he's not able to get enough supplies across the border quickly enough to keep his troops fully supplied. Now, all of a sudden, it is the uh, Austrian troops who are poorly supplied. 
And the Russians, meanwhile, have been uh, shipping arms into Serbia en masse, and the Serbian army now at least has enough rifles for most of their guys, and they're able to counterattack this uh, hungry and uh, poorly supplied Austrian army and push them all the way back to Bosnia. As a result of this debacle, Potioric is fired, and the next invasion of Serbia will actually take place under German control. But that wouldn't happen for a little while yet. See, in October of 1914, right, even as Potioric is successfully moving into Serbia, the Ottomans join the war on the side of the Central Powers. They do this at the instigation of the Young Turks, uh, and uh, their goal is to take some land from Russia, basically. Uh, They don't have much hope of actually taking back Serbia or anything, because after all, that's the area where their Austrian allies are interested in moving. But the Ottomans might be able to do something against the Russians. This changes the strategic situation a little bit, and uh, Germany is interested in forming a land connection with the Ottoman Empire, their new allies. Right Right now, the only way to send supplies or people between the Ottoman Empire and the Central Powers is by sea, and that is very dangerous. Remember, the British are the most powerful naval power of the day by far, and none of the central powers are known for having particularly good navies. So if the uh, central powers could form a land connection, they would be much better off. As it turns out, there are only two countries separating Austria-Hungary from the Ottoman Empire. Those two countries are Serbia and Bulgaria, and Bulgaria at this time is still neutral in World War I. So what the Germans propose is for the Austrians to make a separate peace with Serbia. From the German perspective, this makes sense, right? All of a sudden, you could ship goods over land between the Central Powers, maybe even move troops, and... You need to do that because, after all, the Russians and the French and the British are the real enemies. But from the Austrian perspective, this whole war started because of Serbia. And they ought to be able to clean it up pretty quickly anyway, and then they'll have that land connection to the Ottoman Empire, and they'll be better prepared to uh, fight the Russians. And... Nonetheless, despite this, there are some early moves towards a separate peace, but the situation changes in the spring of 1915. Russian armies, which have been pressing into the German half of Poland, Poland at the time not being a country, the area of Poland was split between the Germans and the Russians. Well, the Russians are in the German half of that, wreaking havoc now. And uh, they have been stopped cold. And with the stopping of this Russian advance, Germany is feeling less pressure, and so they start putting less pressure on the Austrians to pursue a separate peace, and the whole thing kind of falls apart. 
In the spring and summer of 1915, the Serbians spend their time mostly reinforcing their borders. They launch a few raids across the Sava River north into Austria, but they can't take any land. They can't keep it. And the political leadership is still pursuing this idea of a separate peace. Uh, so they don't really want to do anything to take a whole bunch of Austrian land, maybe create resentment against uh, Serbia that doesn't currently exist, right? They would rather just form a defensive line and hope that there's some sort of settlement. But that's not going to happen because the emboldened Central Powers are rearming. The Austrians spend the spring and summer of 1915 in addition to fighting the Russians on a whole nother front, they spend that time preparing for an invasion of Serbia. Right? Serbia is now strategically important to the Central Powers. If you can get Serbia, you're one step closer to getting that land bridge. And, by the way, that other country you need to get, Bulgaria... Well, the Austrians are at work with their diplomats once again, and on September 6, 1915, Bulgaria signs a Treaty of Alliance with the Central Powers. And on September 22, 1915, their army begins to mobilize. Now, why is this bad for Serbia? Well, we've already described how the Austrian Empire has them surrounded to the west and the northwest and the northeast, right along the various rivers. Well, Bulgaria lies to the east of Serbia, right? If Bulgaria attacks them, Serbia is being attacked from the north, the east, and the west. Right? The only friendly border they will have will be the southern border with Greece, which is still neutral in the war at this point. On the other hand, their defensive position is getting a little bit better. They're getting some artillery from the British and the French. There is a rail line that goes from Greece up into Serbia, so they're still able to get some help from outside, but the neutral Greece authorities are also creating issues with a lot of those shipments because they don't want to be seen by the central powers as aiding the Serbians. Again, they're a neutral country, so a lot of times these shipments take inordinately long to get through. And at this point, it looks like that's all the help the Serbs are going to get even as Austrian troops are massing along the Sava and Danube rivers, all of their northern border, at the end of September 1915. It is only a matter of days before landlocked little Serbia will be squeezed in a vice. In an addition to their just overwhelming numerical superiority, the Austrians and their German allies have a major advantage in artillery. As we said, the Serbs have been getting plenty of rifles, some artillery, but nothing like what the Germans and the Austrians are fielding. In addition, uh, the Austrians have 11 or 12 river monitors, 
Those are uh, not necessarily seaworthy craft, but they're river-going boats with big guns. Right? Not as big as the massive guns you see on seagoing ships, but they're able to uh, function as mobile artillery platforms, basically, to get in really close to the shore. And if all of that doesn't give the Germans and the Austrians enough of an edge, they are also under new leadership. Remember I said Governor Potiorek got sacked? Well, now in command of this combined army is German General August von Mackensen. That turning of the tides that had just happened up in Poland, where the German army blunted the Russian advance, well, that was uh, masterminded by von Mackensen, and now here he is leading the invasion of Serbia. And on October 6th, 1915, the invasion would begin. Now, that day, no Austrian or German troops actually attack uh, themselves, right? This first day is an artillery bombardment. And much of this artillery falls in the area of Belgrade. Uh, the reason for this is that the geographic area around Belgrade and its suburbs is really the best area to cross into Serbia if you're an invading army in this time. Out uh, to the west, if you get very far west of Belgrade, you start running into swampland. In that area, uh, Austrian and German troops do cross, but there's nothing really directly across the river for them to take, just some swampland. The Serbs have been able to set up a defensive line a few miles inland out of range of the uh, Austro-German artillery, which is on the other side of the river still. You have a similar situation uh, to the west of Belgrade, uh, there's another river crossing a ways down, but the terrain there is very hilly. And again, there's nothing right up against the river for the Austro-German forces to take. They can form a beachhead, but now they're subject to Serbian fire coming down at them from out of these hills. And the Serbians are too far back from the river for the German and Austrian artillery to really effectively attack. On the other hand, right... Belgrade is right there in that little peak at the north end of uh, Serbia as its borders existed in 1914. And it's within very easy shelling range of artillery right across both the Sava and the Danube rivers. So Belgrade is the obvious point of attack. Now, this isn't to say that the Austrians and the Germans didn't attack east or west of Belgrade. They did. They attacked across the entire front. But Belgrade was the obvious place to establish a useful beachhead where you could start moving other troops across the river and, and open up the rest of Serbia for conquest. And on the night of October 6th, right after that, first day of the opening bombardment that night under the cover of heavy rain, advanced German and Austrian positions deploy across the Sava River right, to the northwest of Belgrade. 
And there's a pair of islands in the middle of that river called the Gypsy Islands, and they're connected to the Belgrade side of the river by a couple of bridges. So the Austro-German plan is, under cover of darkness, to ferry a bunch of troops across on pontoon boats where those islands are, where there's much less water to cross, uh, and set up a bridgehead there, and then they can attack uh, over the bridges from the island. Well, unfortunately for the uh, Austrians and the Germans, this heavy rain that helps conceal their troops' uh, deployment also makes it difficult to get the pontoon boats set up and moving, so they don't even start their crossing until 7 in the morning. And it's light out at that point, and the Serbians can see them crossing to the Gypsy Islands, so Serbian artillery... I said the Serbs are short on artillery. They still have some. Uh, the Serbian artillery starts firing at the pontoon boats as they're crossing. And the Serbian artillerymen give a pretty good account of themselves and sink several of these pontoon boats. So for now, the attack on that side of the city is stalled. But there's yet another island uh, in the confluence of the two rivers. Uh, and that island is directly north of Belgrade. And while all this fighting has been going on off to the northwest across the Sava River, right there in the junction of the Sava and the Danube, the Germans have suddenly set up a beachhead successfully. Now, by midday, they have to stop moving more troops across the river, because the Serbian artillery is just destroying too many of these pontoon boats, right? If they lose all their boats, they're done with this invasion. So they've got to retire for the day. And the uh, German and Austrian troops who are on shore, they're going to have to hold their own until some more supplies and reinforcements can come overnight. Well, that is a great time for the Serbian defenders to launch a counterattack, isn't it? Right? When your enemy is sitting there on the bank of the river with their backs to the water with no more supplies coming till tomorrow, right? And in charge of the Serbian counterattack is a man named Major Jagutin Gavrilovic. He's in command of the 2nd Battalion of the 10th Infantry Regiment. And in addition to these troops, uh, he was joined by uh, about 300 volunteers, but it was uh, mostly this particular uh, battalion under his command. And their objective is to counterattack at bayonet range, right? Uh, you've got this German and Austrian artillery superiority to deal with. If you get in at point-blank range... The artillery can't target you, right? If they do, they're, they're going to be hitting their own guys. So by charging right in, the Serbs will be able to neutralize that German advantage. Regardless, obviously, this is a dangerous mission. And Gavrilovic's men, both the regulars and the volunteers, form up in front of a cafe. A small crowd of locals has gathered to see them off. And one local girl has gathered some flowers, and she's handing them out to the troops. At this time, Gavrilovich gives a speech. 
He says, quote, Soldiers, at exactly three o'clock, the enemy is to be crushed by your fierce charge, destroyed by your grenades and bayonets. The honor of Belgrade, our capital, must not be stained. Soldiers, heroes, the Supreme Command has erased our regiment from its records. Our regiment has been sacrificed for the honor of Belgrade and the Fatherland. Therefore, you no longer need to worry about your lives. They no longer exist. So forward to glory, for the king and the fatherland. Long live the king, long live Belgrade. Unquote. And Gavrilovich's men would indeed charge the Austro-German beachhead at three o'clock. Unfortunately, the high command had failed to consider the presence of the Austrian river monitors. And those river monitors risked Serbian artillery fire to move in and deliver point-blank fire against the Serbian charge, which breaks up for the most part before even reaching the Austro-German lines. It becomes one of the endless series of examples from World War I of futile attacks against modern weaponry. But at the same time, it's also yet another example of the incredible bravery of some of these men who fought in the First World War. Right? Those... Serbs, both the regular infantry and the volunteers, continued charging into near certain death as the artillery fire from the Austrian river monitors blew them apart one by one. That takes a special kind of courage. Over the next two days... Slowly but surely, the German artillery advantage would ultimately take its toll. The continued counter-battery fire, that's when artillery shoots at other artillery, the superior German counter-battery fire eventually silenced these Serbian guns one by one. And without the artillery, they were unable to stop more and more Germans and Austrians from crossing the river, and ultimately the Serbian army would be forced to withdraw from the city. The final defense would be led by some remaining army elements along with civilians, including women and children. By October 11th, the city would fall completely, but... Von Mackensen, that old, respected German commander, was deeply impressed by the Serbian defenders. And at the site of Gavrilovich's charge, he would build a monument that bears the inscription, Here Rest Serbian Heroes. That says a lot about the spirit of a city's defenders when the victorious army builds a monument to them. 
But the fall of Belgrade did not immediately, automatically mean the fall of Serbia. Uh, there was still a war to be fought, and the commander of the uh, western half of the front, uh, Serbian General Mihailo Zivovic, sends the following message to the Serbian high command after the fall of Belgrade. Uh, quote, It is therefore crucially important that a complete division is sent here immediately, because no purpose is served by sending smaller formations. It is already impossible to pull a single regiment out of the front line as a reserve, as this would leave the line too weak. Some regiments have been reduced to half or even one-third strength. One must not forget that we have been in constant fierce combat for five days and have defended every yard of soil of the homeland. All of this within range of the German heavy guns and the Austrian monitors, whose devastating fire has placed an almost unbearable strain on the nerves of officers and men. In those sectors where they were not subjected to the devastating fire of the German batteries, our troops have successfully beaten off attacks and also made powerful counterattacks against a superior enemy. Unquote. And in response to this request, troops are indeed sent to reinforce the line, but it wouldn't make much difference. Unfortunately, on October 11th, the same day that uh, the last Serbian defenders were forced from Belgrade, Bulgaria finally launches their invasion of Serbia from the east. And that vice between Bulgaria and the Austro-Hungarian Empire begins to close. Now, the British and the French do try to help. Uh, they've landed a few divisions of troops in the Greek port of Salonika. It took a while to negotiate this with the Greek government. Uh, and this port is south of the Serbian and Bulgarian borders. So these French and British troops do come north to try and help, but there aren't really enough of them to form you know, an entire offensive line on their own. All they can do is uh, clash with some rear elements of the Bulgarian army and cause some trouble, but they can't actually take any of Bulgaria with the number of troops they have there, uh, so it's not enough to stop Serbia from falling. And on November 23rd, 1915, facing the prospect of complete collapse, the Serbian government and high command agree to retreat through Albania and Montenegro towards the southwest. Basically, the only way out of Serbia that is not completely blocked by Austro-Hungarian troops. Now, the goal of this evacuation was to get the army out uh, get it to the Adriatic coast where French and British ships could then pick up the troops and move them around to somewhere where they could actually be useful, uh, most likely Greece. But this retreat, which historians now call the Great Retreat, it involved crossing some treacherous mountains in winter. This was not a safe journey. As a matter of fact, 400,000 Serbians would set out on this journey, and roughly half of them civilians, and 
about 220,000 of them would die, including roughly 140,000 civilians. Now, 23,000 of those civilians are young boys. They're too young to be conscripted into the army until next year, but they were brought along and they died in the mountains. Some more civilians, as well as soldiers, are killed by Austrian pilots. These bombings by Austrian air raids are the first known aerial bombardments of civilians in history. And as the retreat is carried out, Serbia is divided into occupation zones between Austria and Bulgaria, with Austria controlling the north and west and Bulgaria controlling the south and east. The only effective action against either of those forces in Serbia are, well, some of those Chetnik guerrilla groups which are still hanging around and causing trouble. But the main Serbian army itself would also continue to fight on. As it turns out, uh, they would go to Greece uh, and join with those French and British forces already in Salonika. Those French and British forces would grow throughout the course of the war, and this was an entire front uh, that became known as the Salonika Front. Right, everybody talks about the Western Front. Everybody, in the West at least, forgets that the Eastern Front even happened until the Russian Revolution. And for the most part, we completely ignore the Salonika Front. And yet it was one of the three major fronts of World War I. And fighting in Greece and Bulgaria was not always safe for the Allies, particularly the Serbs. There were disagreements within the Greek government over which side of the war they should be on, whether they should be neutral or join the Allies. Uh, this ended up in a series of intrigues and coups in Greece called the National Schism. That's a whole different story of its own. Uh, basically, by 1915, uh, the democratically elected government had joined the Allies, but the king wanted to remain neutral, and for that reason, they were technically neutral until 1917. It's really complicated, Uh Nonetheless, the Allies were able to effectively fight out of Greece and at least form a second front in Bulgaria and the Austria-Hungarian Empire to take some pressure off the other fronts. During this time, there was a reckoning for the Black Hand. Prime Minister Nikola Pasic has become convinced that the Black Hand bears sole responsibility for the war, a war that has killed uh, hundreds of thousands, possibly millions of Serbs. And Prince Regent Alexander Karadorovich also sees them as a threat. Right After all, they did carry out one coup before, and he particularly doesn't like Apis. Uh, this, for once, puts uh, Nikola Pasic and Prince Alexander in agreement, uh, and they uh, round up the senior leaders of the Black Hand 
and uh, all of them, including Apis, are court-martialed on charges of plotting to assassinate Alexander. Now, these charges may have been trumped up, but the end result is that Apis and his other senior leaders are sentenced to death and executed by firing squad. The interesting side note, uh, they would eventually be exonerated by the Supreme Court of Serbia in 1953 on the basis that there was no evidence. Depending on your politics, you can decide which trial was the show trial and which one was the legitimate one. And the Salonika Front, this southern front in Greece, right, just south of Serbia and Bulgaria, that would ultimately prove decisive to the war effort. The Western Front between France and Germany famously was a stalemate for most of the war. The Russian Empire at the end of the war had fallen into revolution and surrendered to the Germans, but the Salonika Front was still full of active fighting, and in September of that year, in 1918, French and Serbian troops would break through all the way into Bulgaria proper. And Bulgaria, at this point, would be so utterly defeated that they became the first central power to surrender on September 29, 1918. Ultimately, they proved to be the first domino. On October 30th, 1918, the Ottoman Empire surrenders, and uh, this, combined with a war with Greece that lasted until 1921, uh, this would lead to the complete breakup of the Ottoman Empire. It was the sick man of Europe. It was struggling, but it was an ancient empire, and it was still around. In 1921, you have an international agreement called the Sykes-Picot Agreement, where France and Britain essentially dictate the terms under which the Ottoman Empire is to be dismembered. And that's actually how you get the borders of most modern Middle Eastern countries. Only 11 days after the Ottoman surrender, on November 11, 1918, Germany and Austria would surrender. Austria herself would be dismembered, broken up into well, modern Austria, Hungary, Czechoslovakia, and a handful of other territories that would get parceled off. And another outcome of this war was that a new nation would appear that hadn't existed since 1793. The nation of Poland, which would be carved out between the old German and Russian empires. And for her part in the war, Germany would be forced to disarm militarily and to pay huge war indemnities, which would ultimately sow the seeds for German resentment in the beginning of World War II. And out of all the countries in World War I, Serbia had perhaps the most bittersweet ending. In terms of the cost of the war, Serbia 
perhaps paid the most of any country in relative terms. She would lose roughly 25% of her male population during the four years of World War I. By comparison, the next hardest-hit country, France, lost a little over 16% of its male population in World War I. Uh, this is a huge cost. But at the same time, if you're asking whether or not they accomplished their war aims, well, Serbia won a resounding victory. As their spoils, they would receive a large amount of territory from the Hungarian half of Austria-Hungary, amounting to most of that majority Serb territory they had been coveting for so long, and they received Bosnia-Herzegovina and most of Croatia. Serbia grew by leaps and bounds, and the ethnic Serb population in the Balkans was almost entirely united. And in 1918, at the end of the war, in addition to all that, the small nation of Montenegro voluntarily merged with Serbia. They joined themselves. And in this momentous year, King Peter would once again resume the throne as the active monarch. And until his death in 1921, Peter the Liberator... Peter I Karadordovic would be king of the Serbs, Croats, and Slovenes. And when he died, uh, Alexander would take over the throne, this time for real, and he would end up becoming the first king of Yugoslavia. This was not a new country per se, it was just a rebranding of the kingdom of the Serbs, Croats, and Slovenes into something that rolls off the tongue a little more easily. And Yugoslavia would prosper all the way until World War II, and unfortunately in World War II, in a bid to secure the Balkans and Romanian oil fields, Hitler asked the Yugoslavian government to join the Axis side, and I'm boiling things down a little bit here to sum them up, but essentially the government had little choice and agreed. But the very next day, the Air Force would stage a coup and install an anti-Nazi government, but ultimately it wouldn't matter because the Nazis would simply invade and force Yugoslavia to join the Axis. Uh, the government went into exile, and a communist guerrilla of all people a man named Josip Broz Tito, uh, was successful in driving the Nazis out. Now, Chetnik fighters also helped with this effort, right? The Chetniks, uh, these militias, were still a force in the Second World War. But unfortunately, while they were nominally backing the royal government in exile, they made a lot of their own policy, and part of that policy involved expelling... Croats and Muslims from the country and murdering many of them in an attempt at their own type of final solution. And this obviously left them with no international support, which meant that 
Tito, the communist guerrilla leader, assumed the mantle of the unifier of Yugoslavian population, right? Uh, he wasn't just a Serb nationalist. He was the leader of the Serbs, Bosnians, Croats, and Slovenes, right? As the old country name used to say. And Tito was a communist, but he was also a nationalist. Uh, at this time, the world communist movement was mostly led out of Moscow in the Soviet Union. And after World War II, the Soviet Union had left troops in all of the Eastern European countries it liberated. And just by coincidence, all of these countries happened to elect communist governments after the war and joined what was called the Warsaw Pact, a group of communist countries under the leadership of the Soviet Union. But Tito refused to join the Warsaw Pact, and he did this despite several threats of Soviet invasion. Right? At one point, uh, Soviet and communist Hungarian troops even massed on the Yugoslav border, threatening to come in and liberate the country. Uh, from Tito. But Tito was in part able to pull this off through a propaganda coup. See, the Soviet propaganda about the Warsaw Pact said that the Soviet Union had liberated all of these Eastern European countries, and the Soviet troops needed to remain there to protect them from the imperialist West. Well, Tito plays right along with this propaganda, but he follows up. He says, look, all of those other countries need Soviet protection. Yugoslavia liberated herself. Stalin, the Soviet leader, ultimately tries to have Tito assassinated on several occasions, and Tito gets fed up with it. He sends Stalin the following message. He says, quote, Stop sending people to kill me. We've already captured five of them, one with a bomb and another with a rifle. If you don't stop sending killers, I'll send one to Moscow, and I won't have to send a second. Unquote. Apparently, Stalin was spooked because uh, he stopped sending assassins after Tito after that. Later in life, Tito would join with Indian Prime Minister Jawaharlal Nehru to found what was called the Non-Aligned Movement. Uh, this was a movement of multiple countries that chose not to take sides in the Cold War, right? For roughly 45 years, half the world was on Team USA and half the world was on Team Soviet Union. Well, Tito and Yugoslavia didn't want to be on either team, and neither did India, and neither did a few other countries. But with the end of the Cold War and the end of communism in most other countries, Yugoslavia also came to an end. In 1992, it broke up into several other countries. And parts of former Yugoslavia are still disputed today. Right? The region of Kosovo, which, depending on who you ask, is either its own independent country or part of Serbia. Regardless of who you ask, Serbia is a nation, with UN membership, with its capital in Belgrade. <laughs> 
and the Karadordovich dynasty also remains live and well. Uh, Alexander II Karadordovich, uh, that would be uh, Prince Alexander's grandson, uh, he remains crown prince of Yugoslavia and king of the non-existent kingdom of Serbia to this day. He's a king without a throne, but uh, he remains influential. After living in exile during the communist years, he now lives in Belgrade, uh, and he is an advocate for human rights. Oddly enough, he is also an advocate for constitutional monarchy. Uh, he's an interesting egg if you go and read his website. But even after flirting with the idea of pan-Slavism, a united Yugoslavia with all of these other groups, the Serbs, and indeed the other groups, right, the Bosniaks, the Croats, the Slovenes, have all ended back up with their own countries again. They came back to nationalism. What drives that? Is it the same language? That's a lot of what makes a Serb a Serb, speaking Serbian. The same for the other Slavic peoples. Is it having the same religion? Well, most of the Serbian people remain Orthodox to this day, but that's by no means universal, nor was it. Or is it a shared history? the history of being surrounded by three powerful empires and having to stick together, so to speak. Maybe it's a combination of all three of those things, the shared history, the shared Slavic languages, the largely shared religion. Maybe all of that is what makes the Serbs a nation. It's hard to say. Look at the fallout from World War I. In four years, two of the world's most ancient empires, the Austrian and Ottoman empires, ceased to exist. The Russian Empire also ceased to exist. You had the Russian Revolution and the rise of communism eventually became the Soviet Union, but... Wow, what a transformation. You had the Versailles Treaty, which was very punitive and required uh, large payments from Germany, sowing the seeds for World War II. And you had the World Center of Finance relocate from London to New York. This marked the beginning of the major decline of the British Empire and the rise of the U.S. as a true global power for the first time. You could quite accurately say that all of the events of the 20th century, and even events today, are just the fallout from World War I. None of that would have happened if not for some Serbian nationalists. And that's why it's relevant.
Just a reminder, if you want to get in touch with me, you can always reach the show at at Dan Toller Podcast on Twitter. That's D-A-N-T-O-L-E-R Podcast on Twitter. And you can also find me at Dan Toller, that's T-O-L-E-R, on Facebook. In addition to that, if you want to send an email to the show, whether to give some input or request a different topic, go ahead and shoot me a line at dantollerpodcast at gmail.com. Once again, that's dan, T-O-L-E-R, podcast at gmail.com. If you just stumbled across this episode and you'd like to find more episodes, they're available on just about every podcast service. You can find Relevant History on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Deezer, iHeartRadio, Podbean, and several others. Just search for Relevant History. That's R-E-L-E-V-A-N-T, History. And if you happen to prefer YouTube, the show is on there well, just don't expect any fancy videos. Finally, if you'd like to keep up with my blog, which may or may not ever be updated, you can find the show at dantollerpodcast.com. That's dan, T-O-L-E-R, podcast.com. Thanks.